0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts. And on this week's episode, I'll be speaking with Reverend Ben Johnson, a senior editor at the Acton Institute. We'll be talking about the problem of child marriage. Where does it occur most, and why is it still happening? Then on our cultural commentary segment, Upstream, Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Titus Tetura, film critic and a contributor to The National Review, The Federalist, and more. Titus and Bruce discuss Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, in light of its 50th anniversary. So, without further ado, let's begin.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Caroline Roberts, your host for Radio Free Acton. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Ben Johnson. He's a senior editor for the Acton Institute and managing editor of Acton's publication, Religion and Liberty Transatlantic. You can read daily articles at acton.org slash publications transatlantic. Thank you for speaking with me today, Father Ben.
2: It's always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Today, we're going to be taking a look at Father Ben's cover story for the newest spring 2018 issue of Religion and Liberty. The name of your piece is To End Child Marriage, Change the Economic Underpinnings. Father Ben, first I'm wondering, what first drew you toward a story about this
2: topic? Well, I knew that it was a topic for some time. Uh, It's usually associated with uh, the feminist movement and so on, but uh, there are very real harms that come about because of uh, the issue of child marriage, particularly when girls marry very young, uh, many of them under the age of 14. And you know, one in nine girls in the developing world will be married before they are 14 years old across the developing world. So it's it's a very uh, difficult situation. And when I saw that uh, Acton and our approach had something to add to it uh, that might even possibly help uh, save someone's life at some point, I felt drawn to speak up on it.
1: Do you feel that largely, in a way, feminism in America overlooks this problem overseas?
2: Uh, primarily, the uh, people who have dealt with it uh, overlook economic issues altogether, and that's not, that's true across the board—not merely feminism, but uh, across the board in all issues that uh, that deal with this. And here's something that can be done in a very practical way. It takes some investment, as we may may discuss uh, closer toward the end of the interview. But the law has already been passed in most of these places. Most of the places where child marriage is occurring, it's already illegal. So uh, an additional law won't help. Enforcement would. But uh, it's a cultural issue, and there's also a strong economic component that if we ignore, uh, we will allow this to continue to fester and to harm many girls.
1: In which countries do we see child marriage happening most often? And basically, what are the statistics surrounding it?
2: Well, unfortunately, it's endemic. It's primarily in uh, cultures uh, such as Asia and uh, also in uh, the Arab world, but it's, it's throughout the developing world. It's very common in Africa as well. The statistics are that 15 million girls a year are married under the age of 18, many of them, uh, again, under the age of 15. So we're talking about very young girls, as, as young as nine years old and up. Uh, this is a cultural issue. In some areas, it's related to religious customs. In many, it's uh, you know, particularly uh, the Prophet Muhammad married a nine-year-old, so that was considered uh, normative uh, for, for some of his followers who, who follow that. But in other areas, there's a, a strong cultural component. The girls simply marry young. And it's understood that uh, the earlier that a girl marries, the more service she is to the family that she's helping. So uh, there's there's a cultural component, uh, but it's unfortunately so widespread that it would be difficult to narrow it to any one region. Simply the developing world, anywhere that you could find severe concentrated poverty, that's... Where you find it.
1: You detail a few stories of young girls being forced into marriage, facing mental and physical abuse, restricted access to education, and there are so many negative results of child marriage. Why do you think that this is still going on?
2: Precisely because we've overlooked the economic aspect of, of uh, the challenge. Uh, the culture will always exert a strong influence upon the way that we all act. Uh, however, In most of these areas, you find it among the poorest of the poor. Even in the developing world, it's always the lowest quintile where you find the most concentrated areas of child marriage. Uh, It's primarily economically driven, and uh, the economic incentives are the same across the board, which is in, in one aspect, there's a dowry, which is often offered. In some cultures, the parent of the daughter has to offer the dowry, and others, they receive a dowry. But the incentives work exactly the same way, which is the younger the girl, the more economically rewarding it is. Young girls are valued higher than others because, again, they'll spend more years in service of the uh, husband's family, and they're often married to very much older men who are able to dominate them in the ways that you mentioned at uh, the previous question. But uh, that's that's a major aspect which we have overlooked. Uh, and in the same way, uh, girls are simply not valued. They're not valued uh, either in terms of equality, uh, where they're more than, I believe, 100 million missing girls around the world uh, because of uh, sex-selective abortion, but also because of the fact that they are simply not valued economically for what they offer. Girls are considered to be not as productive, and so they won't offer the kinds of economic uh, production that boys would, especially in an agricultural society. You know, boys are able to exert more muscle where that's the primary factor in the economy. They are more highly valued than girls. And when you have extreme poverty, uh, a girl is simply another mouth to feed, as one of the girls in the story that I quote says. That's the primary driver behind all of this. If you're already struggling and you have a girl who is not economically valued, you believe that she can't offer much and she's a net liability, then the best thing you can do is try and recoup some of your money by gaining a dowry and losing a daughter. It's tragic, but it continues because of this poverty and the fact we have not addressed the economic underpinnings.
1: Would you say that in the countries you've cited that there's a strong cultural pressure then for families to sell their daughters
2: in a marriage? Very strong. Uh, there's, a, there's a cultural aspect, which we've we've talked about in all of these cultures, uh, where girls are simply, it's understood that girls will be married by age 14, 15, at the, at the oldest in some of these villages. And uh, quite, as I point out in the article, it was that way in the West as well, uh, before the rise of Christianity. Uh, Rodney Stark, who's uh, social scientist at Baylor University has written a book called The Rise of Christianity, where he notes that there were typical marriages around the age of 11 or 12 in the West before Christianity, and Christianity was one of the major factors that uh, gave women greater choice over who they married and also over uh, the age at which they married. So that that was a major cultural driver that changed it. You know, to this day, as Christianity is receding, we're beginning to see Uh, child marriage even creep into the West somewhat.
1: Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? How do we see child marriage exactly creeping into the West?
2: There's always been some pockets uh, of the United States where it was typical to get married very young. Uh, Just as a cultural reference, you might remember Jerry Lee Lewis, the 1950s piano player who married his 13-year-old cousin uh, when he he was a grown man. Uh, So there are some areas where it was it was culturally acceptable for a long time. Uh, For the most part in the United States, uh, it would be it would not be comparable. Most child marriages, so-called child marriages, uh, I believe there are about 200,000. But the vast majority of those are 17 year olds marrying either other 17 year olds or a 17 year old marrying their 20 year old high school sweetheart. Uh, something along those lines uh, when they graduate. And a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old could be in the same grade. Uh, That that would not really be comparable. Uh, But in in the West, where we have seen some severe age differences, for example, as I point out in the article, is in Germany and in Europe. Angela Merkel in August of 2015 had uh, said that all migrants would be welcome to come to Europe and they would resettle them as they were able. And uh, that was August of 2015. By the following July... There were 1,500 child brides in Germany alone, and 361 of them had been married before the age of 14. It's a culture that uh, has has made that uh, normative, and within that change, as uh, one culture is is becoming more and more secularized and another is clinging to its own religious doctrines, uh, you'll see a change in the underlying dynamics of society.
1: Mm -hmm. So it seems like In some of these countries where child marriage is a problem, there is some sort of resistance against it. You write that, in some instances, the government has recognized the economic underpinnings and simply pays girls to remain single. The northern Indian state of Haryana offers bonds to newborn girls redeemable on their 18th birthday, provided they are unmarried. And these government programs have the unintended consequences of entrenching the system they are meant to eradicate. This seems like a perfect example where government has tried to step in and fix a problem, but has failed to maybe realize exactly where the problem has started.
2: It's a perfect example of unintended consequences. You're right. Uh, this province in northern India, uh, Haryana, has uh, offered girls uh, these these bonds. However, what it's done has under is actually undergirded the dowry system itself, and the dowry system is the primary economic driver of underage marriage in so many areas, particularly of, of uh, the underprivileged, as we've discussed. So if the dowry is the problem, having the government offer the dowry uh, doesn't, doesn't eradicate the underlying issue, which is that girls shouldn't be valued for how much money they can fetch on the free market, whether it's from the government or from someone else, because all that's simply done in some areas is drive up the price of younger girls, as anyone who's familiar with the market and the concept of supply and demand would understand. So it's, it's actually made matters worse rather than better. Thankfully, there are some groups that are looking at the economic uh, underpinnings and changing it from a free market perspective, and that's where we've seen some real advances. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think this also maybe stems from a misunderstanding or just lack of knowledge of the fact that our value is inherent because of being made in the image of God?
2: that's precisely the biggest problem with all of this it's that every one of us male female black and white every ethnicity every every uh, racial category so called i believe in one race the human race but uh, every every economic background we're all created in the image of god and we all share equal human dignity in whatever uh, whatever capacity we find ourselves uh, whether endemically through through our dna and how we were born or what station in society we find ourselves and that's something that is unique and peculiar to the West. We think of that as a given, a cultural backdrop, but in fact, that's something that uh, has come about through thousands of years of the Judeo-Christian religious background merging with Greek philosophy and Roman law This produced Western civilization. And that's, that is, as Lord Acton once said, it's the delicate fruit of a mature civilization, liberty which recognizes our inherent human good.
1: So I don't want to leave this interview on a dismal note, and you certainly don't do so in your piece either. What can be done or is being done to help girls out of this system?
2: Well, thankfully, quite a bit is being done. Uh, There is, first of all, I'm very, uh, I think we should all be thankful that governments across the world are aware of this problem and they are working to eradicate it. Private organizations across the world throughout every country in the West have dedicated tremendous resources to this issue. Again, quite often they miss the mark either encouraging government action or some other ineffectual problem. What we have seen that actually works, there have been organizations uh, like a, a charity called BRAC, which uh, just teaches young girls entrepreneurship, and uh, another called Landessa, which teaches them how to own land in their own name so that they have assets. And when they have assets what that does is show that girls do have economic value. And when girls add economic value to the family, then the economic incentive uh, to to offer them in marriage in return for, uh, for money disappears, and the economic incentive to keep them uh, at home and productive and working then turns around. So I, I tie all this in, 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 to put a human face on it, to a girl named Pandy, uh, Pandi, uh, who is uh, in Nepal, southern Nepal. Uh, and this is a region where, tremendous poverty, child marriage is endemic, and yet when she heard it she was going to be married at age 14, she decided she didn't want to be married, so she began a, an entrepreneurial aspect of making crafts and selling them in the village. And lo and behold, within a very short period of time, she borrowed a little bit of money from her family, and as she was selling these, suddenly she's, she's within a month, I believe, was making more than the national minimum wage in Nepal. And then she's recruiting others. Uh, She has dozens of girls who are doing this. She says she stopped two child marriages within one month of the time this article was written. So... That's where you're seeing tremendous turnaround. When people begin to see people uh, as they truly are, if they can't value their inherent human dignity, at least they can see their economic contribution and the fact that girls have every bit as much to offer and perhaps more in many ways than men do intellectually and economically and in so many aspects.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this today, Father Ben.
2: Thank you, and God bless.
1: You can read Father Ben's article, To End Child Marriage, Change the Economic underpinning. At Acton.org/publications/religion-and-liberty. Is there a moral argument for free trade? Join us for the next Acton on Tap event at the Knickerbocker in Grand Rapids on May 29 to hear Hillsdale College Professor Michael Clark speak about the common misconceptions of trade deficits. You can register for this event at Acton.org/events.
3: Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second
2: thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about
3: something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Hello and welcome to Upstream, where culture is upstream from politics. And today we have a return guest, Titus Teixeira, who is a political philosophy grad student, and he hosts the American Cinema Foundation podcast. He's a contributor to The Federalist, as am I, uh, National Review, Ricochet.com, Pluralist.com, and he tweets at Titus Film. So, hello, Titus. How are you today?
4: Hello. I'm doing great. Glad to join you. Glad to talk about Kubrick's Space Odyssey.
3: That's right. We're talking about the 50th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's collaboration with Arthur C. Clarke, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And the, thanks for, for pitching that to me, Titus, so now I can talk for a little bit. And uh, uh, the um, wonderful thing about 2001 is that there are two important odysseys of the 20th century, and that is brought up by Michael Benson in his new book, Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the making of a masterpiece. And the first, of course, would be James Joyce, Ulysses, which uh, recreates the Odyssey. And the second one would be Stanley Kubrick's, where we actually have a Cyclops in the uh, version of HAL 9000. So, um, Titus, I'm going to ask you, you're, you're, you're far more clever and intelligent when it comes to this film than I... I, I'm not the biggest fan of this film, to tell you the truth. That's 50 years. I've seen it 15 times. We used to go see it in college because it had the nice, you know, psychedelic freak-out three-quarters of the way through. And uh, I I, I get the movie. I understand the movie. But what I guess I would ask of you is to explain to listeners who are the act and audience why they should care about 2001 A Space Odyssey when essentially it's a movie that at best is agnostic and uh, it really kind of leans towards atheism The because uh, uh, Kubrick was a very pronounced atheist and – Arthur C. Clarke in uh, Childhood's End and and what have you, uh, really wrote a lot about um, mankind being subservient to a higher intellect that's not necessarily a god.
4: Yeah, you're right. Uh, It's precisely because this is science fiction and it concerns itself with our new technological powers that we should be paying attention to this and um uh, and then it's also important because it uh, takes a view of things that doesn't presuppose our christian anthropology that is our ideas about what makes us persons and how we might save our souls we can get the the other view and the the view we get here is what would it mean if we were alone in the cosmos as it were with our machines the space odyssey from the beginning from the dawn of man shows that life is killing things and out of the bones of animals you kill or that die you get weapons to kill other animals that is the birth of technology in war and It uh, ends up with HAL 9000, our Cyclops, as you so astutely pointed out. In Homer's Odyssey, the Cyclops is a monster that is defined by his utter embrace of order. He lives a lonely life where everything is neatly ordered up. He runs into these human beings who don't fit into his picture of order, and he destroys them. And this is very much what HAL does. It is a computer, it is a technology, it is something we created but it's not under our control because it's not really human. And when it gets in trouble, when its picture of order no longer makes sense, it chooses to destroy the human beings. So you get this cosmic encounter that is very much an urgent problem for us. You just have to ask the late Stephen Hawking or nowadays Elon Musk who wants to go get us back to space, like in the Space Odyssey. Ask them, AI, what is it going to do to us? Or what are we going to find out there? incredibly dangerous things. These are fairly important people with fairly serious technological and scientific credentials, respectively, and they think that there's a lot to fear in our powers, that there are things we don't understand and might not be able to control. So you don't have to be a Luddite, you don't have to be a Christian to be afraid of our scientific and technological powers, you just have to become aware that there is a deep contradiction that starts from the beginning of history or of technology between what's natural about us and what's artificial, between our souls on the one hand and on the other hand, these powers that are essentially machine-based. And uh, at the end of this great space odyssey, space flight, an encounter with possibly alien intelligences that are almost inscrutable, you see a man who has to play a hero despite all the difficulties of life in space. He has to fight a machine that is at the same time keeping him alive, the computer that controls his spaceship. That is the drama that is so important to us, and uh, it has... uh, uh, purchase on us now if you want the comic image of hal 9000 it's alexa it's siri right you get to talk to a computer that will run some part of your life for you with your consent and you never think about what the price for that is let me put it to you in terms of the news i read in the chicago tribune the other day that amazon is introducing an update to its alexa app called the magic word, because kids grow up to be such demanding brats. Alexa, do this. Alexa, do that. But if they say, Alexa, please, then the robot is programmed to say thanks for asking nicely. As if that (laughs) is going to solve the problem of tech-based tyranny that, that we somehow bring our children up to, to just demand whatever they want. You have a desire, a machine will fulfill it. Is that really going to be fixed by the magic word? Right.
3: Well, one of the things that uh, uh, one might pick up from uh, Kubrick's previous films, uh, with the exception of perhaps Lolita, even though there are parts of it there, Uh, I'm thinking of Dr. Strangelove and Paths of Glory. Okay, anti-war, anti-war, and... uh, holding one's breath when it comes to technology, because technology will get away from you. And uh, uh,
4: so speak to that, if you would. Yeah, I I think you're right that uh, he was a kind of humanist, as you pointed out, a very atheistic kind of humanist, a guy who wasn't looking for somebody to save his soul. But he was very much a guy aware that he was... Uh, facing up to something new, and that 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 makes us almost powerless. Doctor Strangelove is our beloved, I guess, uh, black comedy about the nuclear warfare, and how the follies of generals and politicians and the silliness of individual human beings is dwarfed by this specter of atomic warfare that none of us really comprehend and neither do the authorities we elect or appoint to deal with it for us. It's uh, Kubrick's statement on the futility of our political, of our common and public ways of trying to grasp what we have done in unleashing nuclear energy. The, the 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 famous jokes from that movie like you know, no fighting in the war room, the war room. Right? right that's uh, that that show that's supposed to show that our politicians our, our organized ways of trying to deal with the power we have unleashed are utterly childish in, if you introduce a bit of manners right if you keep proprieties then you won't have to deal with uh, unleashing hellfire and he was obviously very disturbed by, uh, how, by this great distinction and, and this great contradiction between the powers our technologies create and our utter unseriousness about them. It's uh, Life goes on. What are you going to do? You, we all have to go on with our lives, but at the same time, we are now aware even more so than they were in the days of the Cold War. We are aware that at the same time as our normal lives go on, things are happening. We don't know quite what. Some kind of technological revolutions that are creating some kind of future that may have some room for us or maybe not. Uh, Think about HAL 9000 as a threat, as an emasculation of American men. All these astronauts who are supposed to be heroes, like the Mercury 7 were heroes, right? They they have a nanny f- robot that controls their lives and apparently can snuff them out in the blink of an eye. Well, that, eye. Go- that goes back
3: to the uh, early 60s novel, One uh, Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where the machine and the emasculation of modern man, who and most men in that book have willingly emasculated themselves so that uh, the, the women are completely in power rather than uh, being co-partners, co-equals. They, they are actually, uh, it kind of succumbs to uh, Philip Wiley's version of what momism was supposed to be. Yeah,
4: so the the Ken Casey novel, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, also a very famous uh, movie the one Milos Forman the Oscar, is another one of these stories about what, what are we doing to life by our science? What if we end up thinking that being a man, because being a man is being a little crazy, just has to be dealt with scientifically. What if you implement technologies like lobotomy? You could fix the problem of being a man. Right. But it's kind of scary at the same time. And uh, and uh, the point is that all of these things are done in the name of rationality, order, scientific truth, knowledge. They're not done out of cruelty or, or some whim out of arbitrary tyranny. It's not uh, that kind of evil. It's something like you would read in that hideous strength, right? It's the sort of stuff you would read about in some Christian apologists from the early 20th century like Chesterton or c.s lewis about the strange new tyranny that we get by abstract rules of scientific rationality and administration of life they will not tolerate any freedom on our part because we're not part of their scheme and of course you can think about this also in terms of the economy are are we thinking about the future of jobs or of work in a way that eliminates men from the question so that the work will be done by robots and, uh, and, and so work is liberated from humanity. Think about how we have changed our thinking from making work safe for us to prevent work-related deaths to a new situation where we want to protect work from us, where the human factor is the main source of chaos and is the one thing that has to be taken under control so that work can be more predictable, more machine-based. And
3: and, and you could take that to its logical conclusion today with uh, self-driving cars.
4: Yeah. Uh, Did you see the news? In Phoenix, Arizona, some politician okayed uh, self-driving cars. One of these driverless cars killed a person. It was briefly in the news, and then we all looked the other way. Because it doesn't fit our story, we want this technology because in certain ways we're not willing to deal with being human, with all the misery and unpredictability, we want to shed off the burden of morality and mortality, let the robots okay. deal with it, and when okay, a story well, happens that doesn't fit our expectations, we kind of hide from it. Well. Let, let,
3: let's reel this back into uh, specifically 2001. For, uh,
4: briefly, break down the, the movements of the film. So the, the story starts with uh, an anthropology of the human being, the dawn of man. You get uh, uh, this surrealistic music to begin with by Ligeti, Atmospheres, from 1961, that shows you this cosmic indifference. Human beings are not privileged by providence. And then you get Richard Strauss's fanfare from Thus Big Zarathustra, inspired by Nietzsche. And there you see wild animals and primeval uh, apes that uh, are becoming human by war, by fighting, by ugliness and blood and death. It's That's the beginning that sends us off with the throw of a bone in the sky, a very famous editor's choice. This bone thrown into the sky is cut to a space station from the beginning to the end of technology. The dream of flight, the, the idea of independence from the world where nature puts limits on us. And so we move on to this space station and we learn that mankind is finally ready for its cosmic rendezvous. There is a monolith on the moon. Something was found. And this finally is supposed to uh, focus the hopes of people who don't really put their hopes in Christ. They hope that something out there in the universe, like SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, something out there will tell us who we are really. Why are we here? What is our purpose? And so uh, a mission is sent to investigate this moon-based uh, uh, monolith black and emitting this horrifying screeching noise that suggests again the alien transmitting right
3: Other... it, it's
4: putting the direction yeah yes and and in, in this alarm and, and pain in your ears you do get this instruction somewhere around the orbit of Jupiter that's where you should go and the mission led by Dave Bowman or by HAL 9000, depending on how you think about it, heads in that direction. And because of things that go wrong on board, this turns into a death match between man and machine. And the conclusion, as you pointed out, there's a lot of psychedelic uh, self-discovery material there. It is Dave Bowman finally facing up to the question of humanity. He's uh, going through, what is it? uh, a hole in space-time of some kind, some transcendental experience. Of course, you don't get the details of it, although you see all sorts of things in there, if you care to interpret the psychedelic plays of colors and shapes. But in the end, it's Dave Bowman, uh, who is both a baby and an old man. It's it's the sum total of his being, that is to say. And And, and, and I'll stop in you right room. there.
3: If, if I could interrupt just a little bit. Sure. Uh, w- one of the points made by uh, Benson in his book is that uh, the name bowman refers back to Odysseus. Yes. Who restrung the bow of Apollo and shot it
4: through the 12 axe handles. Yes. So uh, the bow is the instrument of rationality. It means setting for yourself a purpose, a task, and achieving it. And uh, that's what plays out in the concluding sequence, where Dave Bowman is both a child and an old man. The whole trajectory of his life, he is the arrow he has shot towards his ultimate purpose. This is the the Nietzschean uh, concept of becoming who one already is. Man is the purpose that man sets for himself and must achieve, and there is this very European, very antiseptic, white, abstract room with works of art there. Suggests uh, finally a kind of cultivation devoid of violence. Finally, man could be human without war or technology. Well, terrific. Titus
3: Teixeira, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today to explain this. And, you know, I, I watched the movie again last night, and I will probably go back to it again this weekend because I. Well, I I have the rental for a couple of days and I might as well
4: find out what it was that I've been missing for the the last 20 times that I've seen this film. I'm glad you're still intrigued by it. And I hope I've shed a bit of light on some of the more important uh, directorial choices. And uh, I hope uh, our audience can, can see that this is something we really have to wrestle with. This is the alternative to the way we usually think about ourselves and our destiny. Well,
3: again, thank you very much. Titus Teixeira is a political philosophy grad student, and he hosts the American Cinema Foundation podcast. He's a contributor to The Federalist, National Review, ricochet.com, and pluralist.com, and he tweets at Titus Film. Thank you so much, Titus. All the best. Okay, and for Upstream this week, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you again next week.
0: And that completes today's episode. Thank you so much to our listeners out there, and if you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, check out our website at acton, There you can check out upcoming events, articles, publications, and more. Lastly, if you like what you heard today, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.